Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 30. So we're rolling right along all the way up to 30 episodes. Glad to uh, have you back on the program. Thanks for listening. My topic today is Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And there's a reason why I want to discuss this. And that's because I'm often asked when I do radio interviews or uh, podcast interviews, whatever the case may be, who is the worst president in the United States, or in United States history, I should say? And that's a very difficult question, because there's a lot of bad guys. There's very few good ones. There's a lot of bad ones. So, uh, of course, I, I would say that there's, there's several different ways to answer that question. The first would be, who is the most lawless president in American history? And I think that the current administration might hold that trophy. Uh, the Obama administration has been completely off the rails. They are um, in open disregard of the Constitution and the legal restraints that, I mean, forget about the Constitution, that's been required of them through simple legislation. You could say that some of this legislation is unconstitutional, but the Obama administration has openly defied executing the laws of Congress. And so I think that, uh, without a doubt, when you look at presidential history, the Obama administration will rank up there for a long time, if people are honest about ranking it in terms of the way I do, which is, how do they uphold their oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution? The Obama administration has to be near the top. But then I think you have to look at transformational figures. So Obama is going to get the going to get the medal for being a transformational figure in, in the way that he's openly defied executing laws, whether it's the Affordable Care Act or immigration law. I mean, you've got several instances where the Obama administration just completely uh, acts like a dictator, uh, whether it's crafting legislation from the executive branch through executive orders. I mean, he's not the first one to do that. Uh, or whether it's defying Congress and foreign policy by going ahead and bombing Syria, even though he has no authority to do so. So the Obama administration is is really bad. But there are other transformational figures. Perhaps in 50 years we'll look at the Obama administration as a transformational administration. It's not going to be a good one because um, if Obama's defying the law now, everyone's taking notice. Everybody in, in each party is taking notice, and I'm not certain that it's ever going to go back. But if you go back in time and you would ask this question of, you know, who is the greatest transformational figure in American history, I think that there are several, but three very important individuals, and I'm going to talk about one of them today. So the first 
as far as a transformational figure, would have to be Lincoln. And I've already discussed Lincoln in a previous podcast. And then you have to look at Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson, because he was doing some things, maybe if you combine Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson together, they were doing some things that were unique in the early 20th century, particularly when it came to a time of war with Woodrow Wilson and the policies that the government adopted during World War I and winning the war on the domestic front. And that included a dramatic expansion of federal programs, unconstitutional federal programs, to manage the economy. And also the way that Wilson advocated sedition, sedition law, uh, which was unconstitutional, uh, and the way that he implemented that sedition law by arresting over 100,000 people. So Woodrow Wilson is transformational in terms of what he's going to do during wartime. But the man that's probably the most transformational, particularly in the 20th century, leading into the 21st century, has, has got to be Franklin Roosevelt. And I want to uh, give you a nice example of that. Um, I was sitting down and I, and I was reading a book yesterday, and it's The History of the New Deal by uh, Basil uh, Rauch. And um, this is a book that um, received a lot of interest in the 1940s and into the 1950s and 60s. Uh, it's um, not one of those that you would pick up today and say, oh man, that's a great book. <laughs> But he wrote an introduction in 1963, and it was um, reprinted in the 70s. And so it became one of these books that when people were looking to study the New Deal, they they would look at it. And so it is an important book. I mean, any historian wants a book that has longevity, a book that people will say, well, that is one of the defining or one of the important books on a particular topic. Most of his other works have been lost. Nobody really cares about them. He, he wrote some other material um, on early American history. Uh, he wrote a, a, a book on Cuba. And uh, he also edited a series of, or a, a, a one book, I should say, on Franklin Roosevelt and some of his speeches. But this History of the New Deal is one of those books that people, when they're studying the New Deal, will still read and digest to help understand the program. And so his introduction to this to this volume of it, I have uh, a volume that was published in 1975. His introduction to this particular uh, volume is interesting. He wrote it in 1963, and he was spot on. This is what I want to talk about with Roosevelt and how important Roosevelt is in our understanding of executive power today and our understanding of what the general government does today. And it's, it's, it's scary and shocking, but Rauch was right on. Okay, so he, he was spot on in what he was saying. Okay, now, he's not a, he's not a conservative. In fact, he's quite liberal, uh, and, and he loves the New Deal. So I'm going to read a couple of things to you. Uh, He says, quote, This and the dying out of the older generation are likely to make us forget how powerful the anti and hate feelings of many Americans actually were during and for quite a while after the years of major New Deal activism. Civil commotion was also held in bounds because the antis and the haters failed to find a sectional or a party bastion. In every region, in almost every state of the Union, passionate supporters of the New Deal dominated opinion. 
Politicians of both parties, except all except a few wild men, knew this and prevented the pot from boiling over. The 1936 Republican platform, like that issued by the conservative party every presidential election year since, was a pro-New Deal document. Now, let that sink in. The 1936, not... <laughs> not... <laughs> The, the the party platform right after Roosevelt, his, his first election after being inaugurated in 1933. The 1936, it didn't take long, one election. The 1936 Republican platform, like that issued by the conservative party, and he puts conser- conservative in quotation because I think he's recognizing that there's no real conservative opposition anymore, by 1936... Every, president, every presidential election year since was a pro-New Deal document. Only the wild men had leaders with some sort of popular appeal. Huey Long and Father Coughlin fascinated millions with their medicine men's imprecations and promises. But at election time, almost all these millions refused to buy their snake oil. Wendell Wilkie, the Republican candidate for president in 1940, had genuine political appeal, but he was a Me Too New Dealer. Again, let that sink in. 1936, 1940, the Republicans have already adopted the New Deal. They've already adopted it. They've made it part of their own platform. And then Rauch continues, Delirious hatred of Roosevelt and the New Deal has died out. He's writing this in 1963. It's gone. Only truly logical enemies of the welfare state, a little band who peep from time to time that we ought to repeal the 1913 income tax amendment, maintain a sad revetment against the New Deal. No politician, not even those ultra-conservatives who give rise to doubts about their sanity, openly attack the New Deal or propose to repeal its major statutes. So if you oppose a New Deal, you have he's doubting your sanity. This is how ingrained this thing has become in American society. The strongest anti-New Deal argument now capable of kicking up some political dust is the argument against deficit spending, but its champions rarely specify any New Deal activity of the federal government that should be abolished. Eight years of Republican rule under President Eisenhower brought coolness towards New Deal goals, but also a certain amount of expansion of New Deal programs along with the largest budgetary deficits of peacetime. Okay, so that's what I want to talk about. Roosevelt as a transformational figure. So here is a man writing in 1963, historian, calling opponents of the New Deal essentially crazy, a fringe element who has no political clout, and they're crazy. And the fact that the Republican Party by 1936 had already adopted the New Deal and made it their own. Thomas Dewey, Wendell Wilkie, I mean, take your pick of these people moving forward. You're not going to find a Republican after 1936 who would openly oppose the New Deal. The only one who came close, and he's writing this before this presidential election year, was 1964 when you had Barry Goldwater nominated by the Republican Party. And the Republican Party split 
in that election. A lot of Republicans refused to support Barry Goldwater because he represented what Rauch calls this fringe element, this insane part of the party that's against the New Deal. How could you, how could you be against the New Deal? So this is why Roosevelt is transformational. Why you can't get around Roosevelt as one of the most transformational figures in American history. So, if you look at presidential elections, and he's right, 1936, 1940, 1944, no one's in serious opposition to the New Deal anymore. In fact, in 1944, Franklin Roosevelt's going to double down, and he's going to issue his second Bill of Rights in a speech that he made in December of 1944, just a few months before he died. Now, this was in his uh, State of the Union. And he essentially says that what Americans need is a second Bill of Rights. They need free housing, free education, a job, take your pick, free health care. And he says this because of the war. He says this because soldiers are returning home, and this is what they deserve. And so it's very important to understand Roosevelt in the context of World War II and the war that really began in Roosevelt's mind in 1933 when he took office and he started the New Deal. I remember back when I was an undergraduate, and there was a political science professor that I had, or who taught at the university where I went, and I had a friend of mine, and um, this friend of mine would argue with this professor over and over again. Now, I never took this guy, but he would argue with this professor over and over again about government power. And this particular professor said, and he was right. Now, this guy was a wacko leftist, but he said, look, the real problem with America is that we haven't left a wartime footing since World War II. Now, his main beef was with military spending. But when you look at what's happening, he's right about that. When you look at what's happening, we haven't left wartime footing since 1933. Roosevelt took office in 1933 with a promise to wage war against the Great Depression. And the policies he was going to advocate would centralize power in the executive branch in a way that it had never been done before. And what he was going to do was use essentially dictatorial powers that he assumed he could take because, as he said, the Constitution is malleable. It's um, something we can just fit. It's a living document. We can fit it to our own needs. So he was going to seize power in a way that had never been done before in peacetime. Now, you can point back to Lincoln. You can point back to Wilson as people who abuse power in wartime. But this is what makes Roosevelt transformational. He assumes power in peacetime that no one had ever used before. And that power has never gone away. And I think Rauch is correct. Every major party since 1933 has accepted the executive branch in the Roosevelt mold. The president has the authority, the constitutional authority, the power to manipulate the economy, to manipulate society, 
in any way he sees fit through executive overreach. Now, one thing that Rauch was incorrect about was that characterizing Hoover as a conservative. Hoover was no conservative. Hoover created the New Deal. He just was never able to implement it the way that Roosevelt did. In fact, Roosevelt openly admitted he stole from Herbert Hoover and the policies and prescriptions that he was advocating when he became president in 1933. So if you look at elections after 1944, though, if you look at 1948, so you have Dewey and Truman. 1948, Thomas Dewey is a New Dealer. And he even admits that. Now, Truman was able to run on a, at the end of 1948 a campaign that was highly critical of what he called you know, the ultra-right in the Republican Party. He scared people into believing that Dewey was going to abolish the entire New Deal. So what's also happened over time is that the American public has accepted the New Deal as perfectly legal and constitutional and correct. And this is why the major parties, either the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, have never run except, I, like I said, 1964, a candidate who believes in uh, a much more limited central government. So Dewey is a New Dealer, and he even admitted it. 1952 and 1956, you get Dwight Eisenhower, who's compassionate, well, I should say it's, he called it dynamic conservatism. Compassionate conservatism is George uh, W. Bush. But Eisenhower called it dynamic conservatism. And dynamic conservatism is just a soft New Deal. As Rauch said, you saw expansion of New Deal programs. You saw centralization of the economy and of power in the executive branch. And then, of course, you add in the foreign policy woes of the 1950s and the ramping up of the Cold War and covert operations by the CIA and other things. And you really start to see uh, the dramatic expansion of executive power. And then you get to 1960 and you have Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was no, was no conservative. Richard Nixon was a progressive Republican who believed in federal power. And when he's finally elected president in 1968, you see that Nixon firmly believed that he could expand executive power. Now, what he's building on at that point, though, is not the New Deal any longer. He's building on its offshoots of the New Deal, Harry Truman's Fair Deal, and uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And so Johnson, the Great Society, is just an implementation of a second phase of the New Deal. It's not the second New Deal. It's a second phase of the New Deal, which is the Great Society. What Johnson did, essentially, Johnson was in the Congress during the New Deal. What Johnson did, essentially, was take Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights and implement that in many ways. So now you're not only in a position where you can't argue against the New Deal. Now you've got a second layer of it in the great society. And if you look at the Republican Party platform, if you look at the Demo definitely the Democrat Party platform, but look at the Republican Party platforms in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and currently, 2000s, and now the 2010s. When you look at their platform, and I can guarantee you 2016 hasn't been written yet, 
But when you look at it, it's going to be an acceptance of the welfare state, of the New Deal. So Americans have become accustomed to this type of government activity, unconstitutional as it is. And in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, I go through the various pieces of legislation and how they were unconstitutional to a point in a, in a very brief way. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to do that uh, in a chapter. Uh, there have been some good books uh, out there about the New Deal and how bad they were. Flynn's, uh, Harold Flynn is, is very good at, um, at opposing, uh, he wrote some very good books opposing the New Deal. I'm sorry, I said, I said Harold Flynn, it's John Flynn, I'm thinking of the actor. John Flynn wrote some, uh, wrote some really good books, anti-New Deal books. I'd also check out Charles Tansel, um, whose work on Roosevelt's foreign policy was very good. So John Flynn and Charles Tansel. And they were writing, they were contemporaries. And you also had uh, an interesting columnist who was very critical of Roosevelt, and that was Westbrook Pegler. Um, he actually called Franklin Roosevelt Moose Jaw. Pegler was, uh, was pretty funny. Um, so check out, those, check out those authors. I mean, Flynn, I think John Flynn's books are actually at Mises.org for free. Uh, so you might go over there and look at those uh, and, uh, and read them. But it's important to note that how, how transformational Roosevelt was. He is the guy that really created the modern executive. Uh, after Roosevelt took office, he said in his first 100 days, he's going to make dramatic changes. And so now when every president comes into office, the, the press, like a bunch of robotic morons that they are, often says, uh, Mr. President, what are you going to do in the first 100 days of office? The question should be answered by, well, nothing. I'm not going to come in and do any type of radical, uh, transformative things because I don't have the authority to do that. So we're in a presidential election cycle. And one of the things I wanted to do with my nine presidents who screwed up America was try to get people to think about executive power. Now, I know on this radio pro- or this podcast, I should say, it's kind of like a radio program, but this podcast, I've talked a lot about Donald Trump. I'm under no illusion as to what Donald Trump is going to do. He's going to abuse power. There's no doubt about it. Uh, if he wins the election, Hillary Clinton is going to abuse power too. It's the nature of the beast now. And I think that, uh, in what I've said before, we shouldn't really even care about that, in a way. We should be thinking locally and acting locally. We should start turning our attention, our focus, away from the central authority and on to our own affairs, in our own house, in our own community, in our own states. Because the executive branch is a lost cause. It's been a lost cause since, really, 1861, but definitely since 1933. It's a lost cause. There have been a couple of presidents post-war who were good. Grover Cleveland and Calvin Coolidge. I'm not even a big fan of Ronald Reagan because I think Reagan did some things that uh, were highly unconstitutional as well. And I'll probably have to do a podcast on that at some point because I often get questions. Why not Reagan? Uh, so I'll probably have to do that sometime. Now, 
if you want to solve our current crisis, you have to start looking away from the central authority. But I think overall, when you pick somebody who is the epitome of executive abuse, particularly in the modern age, it has to be Franklin Roosevelt. And Lyndon Johnson and Harry Truman and Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and Barack Obama, they're all just building on what Franklin Roosevelt was able to do during the Great Depression and then World War II. And when that professor said we haven't left a wartime economic footing, he, he's 100% correct. We still are fighting the Great Depression through central economic planning. In fact, Roosevelt's AAA would put Joseph Stalin's five-year plans to shame in what they were willing to do there. The NIRA, uh, which was the National Industrial Recovery Act. These two pieces of legislation had centralized the economy. And when World War II took place, Roosevelt simply put all this stuff on steroids and created government bureaucracy to do things that were completely unconstitutional. And then when the war's over, Truman just transfers these wartime emergency, quote-unquote emergency measures, into other forms of bureaucracy, and they stay. We've never rolled it back, ever, and no one even talks about it anymore. So when we look at out-of-control federal spending, when we start looking at debt, we start looking at programs, this is where it all began. And the real problem with all of this at the end of the day, if you want to just say, look, all right, the Constitution's dead, and who cares about the Constitution anymore? Because I think Americans have generally adopted that position, whether they know it or not. Because all they want to do is have a soft, a softer New Deal. It's like the softer side of Sears. They just want a softer New Deal. The real problem is going to be spending. Because as William Graham Sumner pointed out all the way back in the late 19th century, the forgotten man is getting crushed. The man in the middle. The rich are going to do very well. They always will. The poor are making out better because, I mean, they get money that they would not otherwise get from these government programs. The real losers are those in the middle who pay the cost of high inflation and get no services or goods for it. And uh, that debt, that spending, is going to crush the American economy eventually. It's inevitable. It has to happen. And so when you want to go back and look at the guy who began this process— Look at the watershed in American history. It's not Lincoln. It's not Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson. It's not Lyndon Johnson. It's Franklin Roosevelt. There's no way around it. And if we are honest with ourselves, if Republicans would just be honest, which I know is acting, asking a lot, if Republicans would just be honest, they would, be, they would admit and they do admit it sometimes, covertly, and, but they would just admit, well, we believe in the New Deal, too. We believe in the Great Society, too, because they do. There has been no real opposition to the New Deal <laughs> from any major party ever. Uh, even the Congress in the 1930s, when they started opposing the New Deal, didn't have the gumption, really, to... Uh, stringently oppose it. They, they wanted a softer New Deal. And uh, I remember reading an article by Murray Rothbard, a 1994 article, where he essentially said the old right 
never had any political power, and they never did. The old right, you know, Rothbardian is a is a right is a right leaning libertarian, right? So um, they never really had any role in the Republican Party. They never have. The Republican Party has been the establishment party for a very long time. And the one thing I can say positive about Donald Trump, I mean, I've talked about his policies and where I think that. I, whether he believes in them or not, I mean, they're, they're marginally better than Clinton's, though Clinton is a crook. And I will talk about in one, one of these podcasts the, the last time we had a real crook running for office. Uh, and I mean a person that was so corrupt that this was even a major campaign plank. I'll talk about that in Clinton because I think we do need to pivot and start talking and start bashing Hillary Clinton and forget about Trump. Um, the last time, you know, we the last time we had that, you know, um, and, and what I'll say about Trump is, you know, even though I know Trump's not going to uh, not going to be perfect, the one thing he is doing is making the establishment scared, and that's good because it opens a crack for the anti-establishment to somehow work its way in. Now I don't know if it's going to happen, but he's opening a crack, a crack that has not been there since really 1964. It just, the old right has been shut out. And so I think that at the end of the day, the president that we should blame most for the current situation in Washington, D.C. is Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, And I know it's fun to, to bash the others, but Roosevelt really was the most important transformational figure in American executive history. I think even more important than Washington himself because of what he did to executive power. So, if someone asks you, who is the worst president in American history? You have a lot of candidates. But if you want to answer it in a way that's consistent with, say, a transformational figure, tell them Franklin Roosevelt. I think that there's no other way around Roosevelt. And of course, unfortunately, there hasn't been a whole lot written, anti-Roosevelt material written. Uh, Most of it's very laudatory, because he is... Again, a, a well-loved figure by the left. And there's so many misconceptions and, and misunderstandings about Roosevelt. Uh, it's, it's shocking, uh, for example, how the myth that Roosevelt saved the United States economy during the New Deal. He, he really didn't. He, he propped it up and created this peacetime-slash-wartime economy that we still live under. So when somebody asks you that question, tell them Franklin Roosevelt and then explain why, because he is the most transformational executive, transformational, I should say, executive in American history. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.